Welcome to the Foreign Desk Podcast with Lisa Daftari. The rift in our nation continuing to grow. And for those hoping that the presidential election would help us unite, well, in the aftermath, we're just left with more division, more questions, more shock and surprise that our fellow Americans on the other side have such differing views about what they want for the future of our country. We're living in a time when roughly half this country exposes themselves to one set of narratives while the other has a different set. One group watching a certain list of media outlets and the other having a very differing list, offering them other truths or fake news. How did we get to a place where we can't agree on what is morally wrong? We can't agree on what historically would unite us, things like the State of the Union or the future of our nation, national security threats that present a risk to all of us the same. But now we disagree on all of it. From tip to root, we can't even agree on an acceptance for the history of this nation. Some would rather erase it or denounce it instead of learn it and learn from it. They'd rather change the narrative as to not be offended by it. Apparently, cancel culture doesn't value history or culture or legacy or our founding fathers. Most importantly, we can't agree on the future. Where are we going from here. Never in our history did an election mean so much, not because of the candidates and their differing parties, but because of their constituents and their vastly differing visions and paths for where they want to take this country. For those of us who grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance, saying God bless you when somebody sneezed, and assuming that the American dream, that white picket fence and big house, the success of all kinds is worthy of our hard work, we're confused, we're lost. If we work so hard for all our trophies, why are they just giving them out to all the children now? If we worked hard to become the fishermen, why have others been raised to just demand the fish? And what do we do with a society of fishermen and fish consumers who can't see eye to eye? Capitalism or socialism? What will be the future? of our nation. To unpack all this for us is writer, scholar, and public intellectual Dinesh D'Souza, an award-winning filmmaker, as well as New York Times best-selling author, who has dedicated his life to detailing these political and cultural differences. His current documentary, The Trump Card, which I highly recommend, is based on his most recent book, United States of Socialism. Dinesh, an honor and pleasure to welcome you. Thank you. It's good to be on the show. Looking forward to it. Dinesh, I was able to watch Trump Card again last night just to be up and up uh, for this interview. And I, I, I cannot recommend this enough. Um, I know a lot of people are interested in voter fraud, which we'll get to um, in a little bit. Um, but I want to start with this clip. It really, really resonated with me and I'm sure with many others. We are in a cold civil war. I see a threat to the very reason I came to America. Are we losing our country? We must begin the work of dismantling the whole system of oppression. Are we becoming the United States of Socialism? Who's behind it? Our country should be more fearful of white men. They control the black community. They control the black vote. The president spoke tonight as if they don't want to hear the truth, the media. And I almost feel like they gloat when there's a mass shooting. My hands are being put in handcuffs. My ankles are shacked. A period of 18 months, I went through 23 different audits or investigations. 29 FBI agents with assault weapons. Why it's evil 
Joe Biden offshored the corruption. He has become incredibly soft in his criticism of China. The growth of China is overwhelmingly in our interest. It is directly linked to the fact that his son was doing multiple deals with the Chinese government. What is the fundamentalist and jihadi agenda for America? The future of America has to be Muslim. What you're saying is that there is serious Middle Eastern and specifically radical Islamic intervention into U.S. politics. Exactly. And I think it's more uh, dangerous than the so-called Russian collusion. You know that I, and I, I showed the whole thing because I, I couldn't really cut it down. It's so good. Um, that line, though, I see a threat to the very reason I came to America. And as soon as I heard this, I was like, yes, yes. You know, that's that's the way so many of us feel. I know you were born in India. You came to the United States at the age of 18 as a student. Just exactly the same story as my father, who came to New York City around the same age. Um, you know, your your love for country is just so, so apparent in all of your films that I have seen. When did you know that, that you love this country the, the way that you do? When did that come about? You know, I think it was the, um, the Scottish, um, the Irish philosopher Edmund Burke who said, to love our country, our country should be lovely. And I think what he meant is that we do love our country just for the fact that it's our own. But a kind of higher reason to love your country is because it's a good country. It stands for good things. Uh, I think when I first came to America, I was struck by some of the uh, abundance of America, the opportunity, the ladders that allowed people like me coming with nothing, $500 in my pocket to move up, social mobility. Uh, but I think once I went to college, um, I began to think about what is it that makes America different? Uh, and I began to realize some of the moral foundations of the country, I began to realize it's not just about being able to better your life, but to write the script of your own life, to be the architect of your own destiny. So these larger themes, and I've now been able to not only study them, but realize them in my own life. I mean, if I went to my grandfather as a kid and said, you know, I'm thinking of making feature films, documentaries, he would think I was nuts. Uh, he would expect me to live a life that's very similar to what my dad did. He was, my dad was a pharmaceutical engineer. I've had doctors. And so my, my parents would have expected me to be in that groove. But the idea that I could be, you know, um, writing books and giving speeches and making movies and all this kind of stuff is a way of reinventing uh, my own path. Uh, creating my own path, if you will. And only America, I think, has given me a scope to do that. You know, it's, what's interesting is many um, Americans or others go to college, go to university, and that's where they become indoctrinated to become more liberal than ever, become socialist, become communist. How was it that you came out of college, an American university, having you know conser a conservative point of view? I realized that the doctrines that my professors were advancing to me uh, did not correspond with my actual experience. Um, see, when, you're, when you show up in college, I was at Dartmouth and Ivy League College, uh, we are all very intimidated because you want to know what it means to be an educated Ivy League guy. So you're very, although you think of yourself as a big independent thinker, most students are conformists. They are looking to their professors to show them how to be smart. Uh, mm -hmm. And of course, my professors were smart, but they would say things that I would go, well, actually, that's not true. So they would say things like, well, you know, Dinesh, uh, all cultures are basically equal. No culture is better or worse, superior or inferior to any other. Mm -hmm. And I think to myself, wait, if that's true, why would any immigrant 
voluntarily leave one country and go to another. I'm not talking about refugees. I'm not talking about people displaced by famine. I'm just saying, why would somebody choose to go to another country? If all cultures are really the same or equal, none is better. Right. Stay where you right. are. You have a natural right. loyalty to your own family. So the immigrant is a walking refutation of this kind of a nonsensical doctrine. Yet the doctrine is put forward very pompously by people who think that they know that what they're talking about. But I'm like, you know what? Mm -hmm. I know that's factually true. My own life is a kind of decisive rebuttal to this uh, mm -hmm. idea. And so I'm not going to go along with it. I'm going to dig deeper. Uh, and the more you begin to dig, the more you realize that a lot of what we call history, for example, is progressive history. It's his history spun in a certain way to serve a certain kind of ideological agenda. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point, it's those people who who spew, you know, so much hatred for this country that are vying for those people lined up at the border to come in. And to, to your point exactly, why are people lining up to get into this country if it's so awful? And if you're if, if you know, the left is making such an appeal about um, how, how awful this country is, how much guilt we should have about our history and how, you know, how unfair everything is. You know, I think a lot of people were surprised about the Latino vote. Um, for Donald Trump. I wasn't. I wasn't at all because any immigrant like yourself, like myself, um, you know, who has worked hard understands that what he fights for is exactly that American dream, which you talk about, you know, but, you know, why is it, um, Dinesh, do you think that so many immigrants are still, um, you know, on that, on that liberal boat, on that, on the Democratic ticket? I think you have to look at each group uh, separately. The group that puzzled for a long time puzzled me the most was the Asian American community, because here's a group of people that if you actually look at their values and their lifestyle, they are too, well, they're certainly to the right of Donald Trump, but they're to the right of Pat Robertson. Community that believes in merit, in hard work, in education, in savings, in close families, uh, that wants not only freedom, but wants to have a uh, social order, wants to have a, a society where parents have a lot of say in the way that their children grow up and live. Um, and so why would a, a, this community of all communities, um, it should be voting 99% for the Republicans, but in fact, it's voting predominantly Democratic. So how do you explain this peculiarity? Uh, I was watching sort of these Oriental and Asian American kids on campus, and I realized that they too are conformist. For them, assimilation means assimilating to progressive liberal culture. So they think that by spouting, oh, Black Lives Matter, you know, they, they don't know what it means. It's nonsense to them. But they utter this nonsense because they feel this is the way to be cool. This is the way for their professors to go, oh, this is a very smart uh, statement. You know, you're denouncing homophobia. So what you have is you've got these poor Asian American kids and they're so eager to become American that becoming American for them me means mouthing the absurdities of the political left. You know, um, you you started researching socialism in 2018 for your book, which eventually led to this film. Um, and you said that you felt that it was for the first time, you felt that that was the biggest threat to our country. Um, you know, what were those signs for you? I mean, how did you, as somebody who really studies society, um, not just politics, but really society, what were some of the signs that you started seeing? Socialism is, um, well, it was the big idea of the 20th century. Um, in the middle of the century, about one half of all the real estate on the planet was under socialist control of one form or another. There was authoritarian socialism. That would be, for example, Russia or China. And then there was democratic socialism, which would be, for example, India. 
the Indian leaders got their socialist ideas, weirdly enough, from the British. They went to British universities. They studied under the same kind of Marxists that we find today in American universities. Uh, they drank the Kool-Aid and they came back with, you know, idiotic expressions on their face going, oh, yeah, we're going to impose some Russian five-year plans. So I grew up under this nonsense. And our, my family had a ration card. You know, you could only buy so much rice and sugar and cooking oil. We were on a seven-year waiting list to get a phone. Uh, so this was, uh, for me, socialism meant scarcity. It meant uh, India was at that time, as you might remember, was the begging bowl of the world. Um, and India has only started doing better in the last 30 years by moving away from socialism, by introducing free market reforms, by moving in a, in a capitalist direction. So I've experienced this. I've lived it. Uh, interestingly, socialism has not in the past been in the mainstream of American politics. It, it is now for the first time. And so that is what the that's the big theme that my book and movie set out to explain. How could it be that one of the most discredited ideas since probably slavery is now making a comeback uh, and is um, worming its way into the mainstream of the Democratic Party uh, for the first time in our history? Right. And exactly to your point about worming its way, you know, it seems like, you know, I think um, Bernie Sanders said at the DNC that when he he started, you know, with his um, basically ideology, I want to call it that, <laughs> bringing that to the table, you know, all the Democrats thought that that was so marginal. And now bits and pieces of what he was promising and what he was spewing, frankly, is is now a part, like you said, a part of, of the mainstream uh, Democratic platform. And now that Joe Biden has been, um, you know, crowned by the media as the next president, let's say there is a, a potential um, Biden presidency. Already, already, we're seeing the backlash um, from progressives on Joe Biden, trying to push him further and further left. It's as if he was basically the gateway drug to, you know, socialism. We got, you know, a Democrat through the door. And now it's going to take a lot of work to still get him, you know, as far left as we want him. How how will this worm its way? Because I want to use your own words. I like the way you put that into a potential Biden presidency. Support for Biden was really, I think, based on his senility. Uh, in other words, the progressives understood that here's a guy sitting in a canoe where he's not operating the oars. So they thought, wow, this is cool. We get to operate the oars. Biden can be our front man and he can say goofball things, but we'll be the ones calling the shots. We'll be the ventriloquists. We'll be the puppeteers. Um, and uh, so every time Biden says something that makes it sound like he actually wants to do something, the progressives are shocked. Like, what? The guy actually can speak. He actually has thoughts. He has an agenda. What? We we thought we were running the show. I mean, this was the basis, I think, on which you've noticed the way that Bernie. So, you know, he just sort of retreated in the primaries. And I think it's because all these guys thought that they would have a controlling hand on the steering wheel of a Biden presidency. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what? It's, it's he has all this, the progressive, I should say, have all of this this help. Um, you talk about the media, Hollywood, uh, how how they want socialism. I mean, how does that work when someone makes all this money? I mean, the, 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 the mask is off on the Democrats. They make a lot of money. They are not of the people, um, particularly the ones that are celebrities. And, you know, we know we, we know how they live. We know those lifestyles. So why are they preferring socialism? Because they have uh, no intention of uh, creating sort of a level society. They have no intention of giving up their wealth. What they really want is they realize that if you look at socialist societies, and this can be, this is true both of authoritarian and democratic socialism, they create a two-tier structure. So in Venezuela, for example, my wife, Debbie, is Venezuelan. 
there's a class of Chavistas um, named after Hugo Chavez, and they live high on the hog. Uh, they have access to wine, and they've got plenty of the best cuts of steak, and they go on vacation to France and take pictures, and they get huge bouquets of flowers delivered to their homes. And the rest of the population lives in misery. So it's equality for the masses, but aristocracy for us. That's the formula. I think this is really why so many corporate types and digital media moguls are all are they okay with this because they figure, listen, right. we're not going to be part of the general mob. We're going to be part of this aristocratic class. We'll be deciding things like what books people read and what gets put out on social media. We get to plan sort of how society is organized. So it gives us this kind of grand administrative role that we wouldn't have if the market was deciding uh, because then nobody would consult us on how many cars should be made next year and what, what people should read on their on their on their computer screens so there's a tyrannical impulse i think that drives socialism now when we think of tyranny we often think of like some guy in a cossack uniform and a toothbrush mustache kind of like the old pictures of stalin but the true picture of tyranny is somebody more like governor whitmer somebody who actually looks kind of harmless you know but then you listen to her talk and she's like nee, 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 don't do this don't do that so in a village society a, a woman like that would just be a terror to her husband her children and maybe her neighbors. But here's a woman who has sort of the power over the whole state of Michigan. So it's that same busybody nagging, I want to tell you how to what to do impulse. When it's backed up by the police force and the military and the surveillance state, it can assume terrifying proportions. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you can talk about how COVID has played such a huge role in, 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 in not only introducing some of this um, tyranny into our society, but making it acceptable for the sake of our health, for the sake of more, you know, fewer people um, dying. You know, how, how has this been, you know, how has this been damaging and how far will this go? Well, I'm, uh, th I think I'm worried most of all about the normalization of government control that sometimes comes under so-called emergency circumstances. We see this even in war, the suspension of civil liberties. Oh, we got to do it. It's a national emergency. But then the emergency passes. It's like, well, we're kind of used to doing it. So we want to kind of keep going in this regard. So we see all kinds of ways in which, uh, in which uh, not only economic confiscation, um, but also an attack on civil liberties. I mean, I did not think when I came to America that I'd be living in a country where our basic civil liberties, I mean, think of it, the right to free speech, it's now threatened. The right to conscience and to freedom of worship, that's threatened. Uh, the right to own a gun, that's threatened. Uh, the right to freedom of assembly, that's threatened. Uh, even the right to unreasonable search and seizure. When when the government actually is, has cops with binoculars looking into your house to see if you're like social distancing, I mean, that violating your basic privacy. The whole point of the Fourth Amendment is to create right around you, your home, your car, a kind of protected space where if they don't have probable cause to think that you are a criminal, they do not have the right to kick in your door. And they're doing that in all kinds of ways even now. How is it? I mean, I I'll go back to my intro. I mean, how is it that I said roughly half this country doesn't see what you're talking about? You said this line in your film, which really, again resonated with me so much that Donald Trump to you was the definition. It reminded you of the American dream and socialism is what threatens it. And half this country thinks exactly the opposite. Donald Trump is what stands in the way of their dream. And this country and socialism is what will, you know, free them of, you know, of all of their guilt to move forward in a better way for this country. I mean, how did we get here? Part of it, I think, is uh, we talked earlier about education and indoctrination. 
but there's also media. Uh, and I think we've seen the media reach a level of um, dishonesty uh, and also I'd call it collusion. Uh, that is frightening. Um, the biggest story of the election, without a doubt, was the Hunter Biden, Joe Biden corruption scandal. I mean, you have the, the, the Democratic candidate and there's documentary evidence on computers, emails, texts. It's corroborated by a business partner uh, of Joe Biden going from one country to another, taking family members as bagmen. They're collecting suitcases of cash. The only time Biden is asked about it, he goes, well, I didn't directly take any money from any foreign country. Well, no, because he got it from family members around the dinner table. And yet this is not covered. Now, think about this. There are thousands of reporters in America. There are hundreds of media organizations. Why didn't in a free market? Why didn't one company, the Dallas Morning News or the Sacramento Bee, go, you know what? All these other idiots don't want to cover the biggest story of the election. We'll do it. We'll cover it. But see, even the press organization was terrified. They knew that their credibility, their reputation would be destroyed if they did that. So we're living, I think, in an America where we have to say rather chillingly, that we don't have an independent or free press. We don't have, in the sense that the founders thought of a press, meaning a group of people independent of the government who will apply the government who will share information with the American people and allow the American people to adjudicate what's true, what's false, what's right, what's wrong. We don't have a press in that sense. You know, you, you speak about so many of these um, t subjects, topics, themes in your film as well. And, and I know you've, you've, you've done this repeatedly in all your films. And I think it's, it's important to talk about, you know, the media and um, its role and the deep state and its role, um, corruption and, you know, all, all of the, the, the varying themes. But, you know, when, when you sit back and you look at the landscape of all the amazing work and the accomplishments that you've had, when, how can you answer this question? Who who is pulling the puppet strings? Who is ultimately at the top, influencing all of this change? It's not so much that there is a. I know people like to sometimes say, "Well, is it Dinesh? You know, tell me, is it George Soros? Is he the guy behind?" Well, he's one of the guys behind it. Uh, is it Obama? Is he behind it? Well, he's one of the guys behind it. Um, I've just been reading, uh, you know, parts of Obama's book. It's unreadable as a book. But what I find fascinating about it is that Obama doesn't take credit for what is probably the biggest thing that he did, which is to say that at the end of his presidency, he organized a campaign to try to get rid of his successor. I mean, it, it is inconceivable that Strzok and Page and Comey and Clapper and Brennan all decided independently, hey, listen, we're going to go on an expedition. We're going to start taping people, doing surveillance. No, somebody gave the order. That was Obama. So what I'm getting at here is that is that there are, we're talking, this is more like birds in flying formation, all heading in a certain direction. These birds don't do an early morning phone call. It's not a conspiracy in that sense, but they're all on the same side and they're all headed in the same ideological direction. I think that may be the best way to understand what's going on. It's not a single individual and the team coordinates with each other, but it's important to realize that people like the media, they're fake, they, they have press credentials. They're actually on a team. They're pretending not to be. They're pretending to be referees. Oh, we're calling the plays. They're not calling the plays. They're on a team and they're trying to score points for one side. Do they actually know that they're they're complicit in this or are they just naive? They're, they're not naive. They're, um, you know, there was an older day in which you had, I think, reporters like Sam Donaldson and so on, who, you know, had were definitely liberal. But if you were to say to Sam Donaldson, hey, Sam, look at the way that you covered Reagan versus Mondale. You've done all this expo expose of one candidate, but not of the other. 
you were appealing to some higher standard of objectivity and you thought there's a little bit of decency in Sam Donaldson. He's going to go, you know what? I probably didn't. So you're, you're calling, you're calling it, if you will, on a reporter to be a real reporter, to be true to what your profession really stands for. But I think if you try this now with like Wolf Blitzer or, or Jim Acosta, you're really wasting your time because either they have no comprehension of what you're saying, objectivity, what? Um, you know, think of a CNN panel, 17 people who all say the same thing. There's no effort even right. to create a modicum of balance. Uh, right. And if they have a single Republican, it's usually the stupidest guy they can find because they're looking to actually find someone that they can all collectively ridicule. You know, um, I want to get to the voter fraud because I think that's what everybody's waiting for. Um, now, you released extended clips um, after your documentary, and I want to remind everyone that um, this interview was done before the election, correct, Dinesh? Absolutely, yeah. Right. And that yes, is very fact, important. The movie was conceived a year before. So right. Um, and I, and I want to emphasize that underscore it a million times because it's very important what you're about to watch. Um, I want to take a listen to some of these. Again, these are extended scenes that were released after the fact, but, but some of this interview, which is with Catherine Engelbrecht of True the Vote, Vote is in your documentary. Um, and let's take a listen to what she says about voter fraud before the election. Take a listen. Legal aliens, we know they're in this country, but they're not supposed to vote. Have we put into place sufficient checks to make sure that illegals don't vote? Absolutely not. In fact, quite the opposite. We've, we've created fast pass lanes by giving so many social services that come with voter registrations attached and get passed straight from federal applications into state voter files, and there's very little that's being done about it. So you believe there's a good number of illegals who are voting oh, right now? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So this is a watchdog group saying that before, again, before any results are released, this is way before the election, she's saying that we just know, we just know that there are illegals voting, but it doesn't stop there. Let's listen to some more. What are other forms of voter fraud? We have, we have the fraud that takes place in, in the ballot arena, you might say. Is there fraud that goes beyond that? Do we have a system that can make sure that the actual number of votes cast are counted? There have been, of course, reports about votes showing up in buckets on the backs of cars at the oh. last minute. What, what's going on with all well, this? All of this, all of this is going on, and it's going on by design. This is this is a, a battle being fought on a thousand fronts. You have states that have moved to all mail-ins, so so the eye to eye, let's go out and vote on election day, doesn't happen in many states. And the consequence of that is that there are no checks and balances. You have uh, ballot harvesting, which is now legal in many states. And what that means is anybody can help someone vote and help as many people as they choose vote and then submit their mail-in ballots. But with no, no way to authenticate the original intent of that would-be voter, you have no idea what's accurate. Couple that with bad registrations, and it's a recipe for disaster. Recipe for disaster, buckets of votes showing up by design. I mean, it's mind boggling. This, this again, done way before the election, and it's exactly what happened in the election. Um, you talked about buckets of votes um, right before we came on, Dinesh. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, along with Sidney Powell and others, gave um, a, a 
press briefing on what they intend to do on all of this voter fraud. And, you know, the, the left-wing media just dismisses it. They're not even looking at the accusations to say we're going to go. They'd rather bully and threaten the attorneys that are involved. They'd rather dismiss it, you know, from the get-go, dead on arrival, than, than to listen. And here she's saying this was by design, but it gets even better. Let's listen to the last clip. Now, is this all just bureaucratic incompetence, the government doing whatever it does badly? Or do you think there's an ideological thrust to it? In other words, when, mm -hmm. when the votes are counted, it seems that the, they don't fall randomly on both sides. They all seem to favor one side, which would seem to suggest that this is not rank incompetence. This is actually organized voter fraud. Yeah, it's, 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 it's useful incompetence. Um, the weaknesses in the system exist because they serve parties who know how to manipulate and exploit those weaknesses. Useful incompetence. I love that when she said that. And either Dinesh, you either, you know, have a crystal ball, have some sort of psychic ability, or you knew to ask the fact that all the the the, the, the ballots that would be found would lean to to one side. I mean, why did you even do this interview? How did you know this is going to happen? And what were your thoughts on on her responses? Well, I mean, I, if anything, understated this in the movie. Um, you know, my wife uh, told me that in Venezuela, they rig the vote after uh, election day, and it's done through the machines. The machines reorganize votes. They flip votes from one side to the other. Uh, and I said to myself, wow, well, that's, that's clearly a big difference from how they do it in America. In America, there's an attempt to sort of get people who may be um, not qualified to vote, or maybe try to get some dead people to vote. But um, what's so fascinating to me now is that we are facing with Sidney Powell, with Giuliani, allegations that the machines are switching the votes. So that means that we are going, if true, full Venezuela in America. And um, but uh, you know what? What I do with these movies is I try to think. I don't just try to think what's going to be important a year from now, but I try to think even beyond that. I try to think. I try to make movies that tell a story that will define not just the past and the present, but the future. Um, and I'm very proud of this film Trump Card because as you can see, it was conceived a year ago, but if you put it on now, after in the middle of these recounts, in the middle of all this chaos, you'll be blown away by it. It looks like I finished the film yesterday. Um, exactly. And all the latest news right in it. Uh, so it has that urgency to it. And yet it, it also has a larger picture because it, it looks at America has been how we got here. It's also not apocalyptic. It doesn't basically say we're losing the country. The country has gone. No, it lays out also the way that we can retrieve things that have been lost, ways in which we can protect values that we believe in so that we can we can ultimately defend the long term. So at the end of the day, this is an inspiring and moving film, although in parts, admittedly, a frightening one. How, how can we retrieve what's going on right now? How can we fix this? Well, one way we can't fix it. There is a certain kind of, I call it, a, there's almost an invertebrate tendency in the Republican Party and on the right to say, okay, well, you know what? Let's give in this time. We'll, we'll try to get it right next time around. But that never works. Uh, if you want to get it right the next time, you got to fix it now. In the same way that if you're facing with an Antifa guy who breaks a window, the answer is not to write a strongly worded op-ed on civility in like National Review Online. Uh, that's not going to work because the guy who breaks the window is going to break every window in the neighborhood if you let him. 
uh, you have to grab him by his lapels and, you know, charge him. And then he's looking at six months in the lockup for breaking a window. And he's like, oh, I better not break any wells. Friends go, well, you know, window breaking is not for us. Let's go back to mom's basement. So the bottom line is accountability is the basic uh, answer here. Uh, and insisting upon it is the key. Uh, if what Sidney Powell and Giuliani say is true, we just can't let this go. Um, I mean, because this would mean that we've essentially allowed democracy to be usurped by a form of systematic vote rigging. Uh, we already are in uh, perils of our First Amendment rights and our Second Amendment rights and our first Fourth Amendment rights. So what do we we have left the ability to get the American people to wake up and express themselves through the electoral system. And what if they take that away too? I mean, it doesn't it defeats the point of me making movies or writing books. Who am I trying to convince? What's the point of convincing people if their votes don't matter? Yeah, you know, and I listen to everything you're saying, and there's there's no one who's done the, the level of, of um, research you have in connecting these these points. And I think that that's what's most important about your film and um, why it's so important for everyone to watch it because of the way that you connect the dots. I think there's there's all these pundits who come out and say this is the problem, and and we just keep regurgitating what the problem is, what the problem is, what the problem is. And you know, I put my you know my guests that come onto the podcast um, uh, to task. I mean, what's the solution? You put out these these films to educate people, but what's the next step? How can we fix things in our university system, the indoctrination? How can we fix things in the media, uh, deep state? How can we have more transparency? How do we fix voter fraud? I mean, it's a tall order, but what's your short list? Well, I was, uh, my family had a meeting with Trump uh, last November. For the first time I sat down with Trump, I talked to him on the phone a couple of times, but never met him. So we were sitting there and somewhat unexpectedly, he throws out this question. He goes, well, Dinesh, he goes, what do you think I should do after the presidency? Uh, it took me by surprise a little bit, but I thought for a moment and I said, well, Mr. Trump, in my opinion, you should get out of real estate and you should start a network. Uh, not, not a cable network, not talk radio and TV, um, not a 24-hour news, no. Uh, a network like CBS or NBC, which has variety shows, which has movies, which has stand-up comedy, which has reality shows, the whole gamut. Uh, you need, you know, when you look, Trump has, he has the money, he has the influence, and if you add up just his social media, he's got 120 million people there. So he has the audience. So he can do this, and this would have long benefits because if we don't fix these problems, you know, it's not just about this election, it's about every election. Um, I also think that we need to create educational solutions uh, that deliver high quality education, perhaps online, uh, to people at a fraction of the cost. That alone would just decimate the higher education model. It would, uh, it won't bring down the universities overnight, but it will bring a lot of them down overnight and it'll bring others down eventually in the same way that the iPhone made the rotary phone obsolete. Uh, our university model is obsolete. Our, our Hollywood model is obsolete. Think of spending 30 or $40 million to make a movie, another $20 million to promote it. Uh, that, that's just not a viable model today. Um, and so I think that there are ways for creative people. This isn't just a matter of standing up and fighting. It's a matter of being creative and marshalling resources to create alternative institutions that can compete in public space. That's a great idea. I actually I, I made the same prediction, but yours I like your idea better of a of an all out network where even the sitcoms 
um, and, you know, children's programming, even, you know, Sesame Street at this point is indoctrinating. I don't know if you've watched it, but um, it, it's, it's, it's really horrifying. I mean, what's out there and the way that they try to, you know, penetrate um, the mainstream, you know, culture and, and politics and, and everything else across the board. Now, as for you, Mr. D'Souza, what's your next move? Well, my, the, my three uh, sort of uh, foci are uh, academia, uh, media, and uh, entertainment. And I think those things sort of, in a way, way they go together. Because today, if you want to communicate ideas, uh, you're better off doing it in an uh, educational, but also an entertaining way. Uh, I try very hard in these movies. You know, I, I don't like people who just say, well, I'm going to go go to your movie to support the cause. I don't want you to see my movie to support my cause. I don't have a cause in that sense. But I want you to go see my movies because they're really good. They're fun to watch. They're going to, you know, yeah. it's like watching a feature film and all the ingredients of a really good feature film. They're, it's informational. It's suspenseful. There are interesting characters. You learn a lot. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. There, there's an emotional narrative that ties it all together. I work hard to deliver that in these movies um, so that I can compete at the highest level and people aren't doing a sort of charity by going to see my films. Uh, they're going to see them because they really like them. Yeah, well, I can attest for the fact that they are extremely entertaining and more than anything, they're educational in a way, like I said, that connects the points on all the other things that we're bombarded with on social media, on Twitter, and uh, cable news and, and, and all the rest. Uh, if you haven't done so already, I urge you to check out Dinesh's Trump Card on demand on Amazon on DVD. You can also go to trumpcardthemovie.com. Dinesh, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for educating people um, and for really dedicating your, your life to telling these stories. We appreciate you being here with us. Thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. And for the rest of you who'd like to sign up for my weekly podcast, go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. Or, and to sign up for my daily top 10 email, go to foreigndesknews.com slash newsletter and you can sign up there. Thank you and see you next time.